0: In that Pledge of Allegiance was a phrase, and justice for all. Well, justice is at the heart of America's founding, and it's what America stands for. It is in the uniqueness of our nation and its founding. And from our very beginning, lives have been stressed, lives have been given, lives have been taken in an effort to secure justice. Justice is a huge Topic. It involves a cross-section of religion, ethics, philosophy, and law, and there are several subsets of the application of justice, the most common of which are distributive justice, which uh, refers to fairness in economics, procedural justice, which has to do with fairness in the processes in life, uh, specifically legal processes, Restorative justice is fairness in restitution, and retributive justice is fairness in punishment. And then there are others, but uh, these are just some of the subsets, some of the areas that we look for justice and expect them and and, uh, are guaranteed them in our constitution, but Since the murder of George Floyd and all of the protests, violence, destruction that have followed in response, we've heard endless commentary and accusation in an effort to explain what justice is and who is at fault when justice fails. This pulpit is dedicated to God's opinion, God's point of view. God's opinion, God's point of view is not always 100% accurately represented and I always feel terrible about that, but we are doing our best and I'm going to do my best through the help of the Holy Spirit this morning to share with you an underlying context which God has given in which Justice in all of its forms and all of its applications must be understood in order for it to be the blessing on society that he has intended for us. Now from the 59th chapter of the book of um, Isaiah, here is God's commentary on justice, why it fails, and how it's restored. And I'm going to read the chapter. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened at all, that it cannot save, nor his ear dull with deafness that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. None sues or calls in righteousness but for the sake of doing injury to others to take some undue advantage. But no one goes to law honestly and pleads his case in truth. They trust in emptiness, worthlessness, futility, and the speaking of lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth evil. He goes on as he's speaking about the collapse of justice in the society of Isaiah's day and what has brought about that collapse of justice. And so continuing, he says, they hatch adders, which is a serpent, a poisonous serpent. They hatch adders' eggs and they weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies from an egg which is crushed. A viper breaks out for their Nature is ruinous, deadly, and evil. Their webs will not serve as clothing, nor will they cover themselves with what they make. Their their works are works of iniquity, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in the paths and in their highways. The way of peace they know not, and there is no justice or right in their goings. They have made them into crooked paths. Whoever goes in them does not know the way of peace. Therefore, Isaiah continues, Our justice and right far from us and righteousness and salvation do not overtake us. We expectantly wait for light, but only see darkness for brightness. But we walk in obscurity and gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. Yes, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the twilight. In dark places and among those who are full of life and vigor, we act like dead men. We all groan and growl like bears. We moan plaintively like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, O Lord, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them and recognize them as rebelling against and denying the Lord. Turning away from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt. Conceiving and muttering and moaning from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back and away. And righteousness, uprightness, and right standing with God stands afar off because truth has fallen in the street and uprightness cannot enter the courts of justice. Yes, truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor, no one to intervene on behalf of truth and righteousness. Therefore, his own arm, his own right hand, his own arm brought him victory, and his own uh, righteousness, having the Spirit without measure, sustained him. For the Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate or a coat of mail, and put on salvation as a helmet upon his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal and furious divine jealousy as a cloak, according as their deeds deserve. So will he repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. On the foreign islands and coastlands, he will make compensation. As the result of Messiah's intervention, they shall reverently fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him and put him to flight. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the breath of the Lord drives And shall come as a redeemer to Zion, to those in Jacob, those in Israel, who turn from transgression, says the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant or my league with them, says the Lord, my spirit who is upon you and who writes the law of God inwardly on the heart and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouths of your true spiritual children or out of the mouths of your children's children, says the Lord, from henceforth forever. Now, that is a powerful statement and commentary. There's a lot in it. But there are two great principles upon which justice is founded, that I want to extract out of this and call your attention to this morning. And here's the first. Number one, no God, no peace, no justice. We see the signs in the street. No peace, no justice. No peace, no justice. But where's the peace? Oh, I'm sorry. Reversed. I, I reversed them. No God, no justice, no peace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for those confused looks on your faces that helped me. We've all seen the signs, no justice, no peace. We're not going to calm down until we have justice. We can't calm down until we have justice. We cannot be at peace until we have justice, until we see justice. As long as injustice rules in our streets, we cannot live peacefully well I'm not going to make a comment or a commentary on that except to say you cannot have justice without first having God and so the sign ought to read no God no justice no peace because where is the justice going to come from if not from God God's message that I just read you out of Isaiah 59 about justice concerning the breakdown of justice begins and ends with himself. Notice the very first thing that his, he made in his statement against injustice opens up with the bold declaration that I am willing and able to hear. God started with that. My ear is able to hear. I am willing to respond. I can fix this. I want to fix this. I care about your situation. So the Lord opens up by saying, "Um, I am here, I'm willing, and I am able. And then quickly, his comment pivots to the reason why, therefore, you're not having the justice that I would have you to have. And he says, I hear society's cries, but I'm unable to deliver you because of society's own sins of hypocrisy and injustice which have brought a separation between me and you you know we know that god is not just a principle etched on a wall in a courthouse somewhere that we don't pay lip service to god but really live contrary to him and expect to have the blessings of justice guaranteed and, and uh, uh, watered and blessed with God's presence in our society any more than we would ignore the spouse of our marriage and expect to have a good relationship. And so God is a God of relationship. And he said, your sins, your hypocrisy have separated me from you. But notice that it's always God who's the first to be grieved at injustice. Because God said, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. God cares about injustice. He is the one who has defined justice because of the righteousness of his nature. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Lord shall raise up a standard. That was his statement at the end, at the end of his discourse as to why justice fails. He said, I couldn't, as I looked to see who is an intercessor, who will stand. Now listen, what he's saying is of all the people that are running to and fro in the society and and shouting about, we want justice. Where is the shouting about we need to get right with God? Who, who is protesting that we are not walking in righteousness before God? Who is saying we need to get to the altar? We need to, you know, we, we need to take ourselves to the altar before we go to the courthouse. And so he says, I wondered that there was no man standing in the gap and crying out for truth. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation, and he now begins to talk about the sending of the Messiah, who is God himself coming in human form, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, the scripture says, Then when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will, be, will lift up a standard against him, and uh, he shall come in as a redeemer to Zion, to those who turned from transgression, says the Lord. So you can see that God ends this commentary about justice saying, but I'm not going to leave the human race broken in injustice. I will come. I myself, I am justice, and I will come, and I will bring justice. So in summary, that, that's a big thought. But uh, the simple way of saying it is that God lays the foundation of justice on the messianic promise. God puts the very foundation of what justice is on the shoulders of Jesus, on the messianic promise that he himself will come. And how did he procure justice for us? But he gave himself as a victim to injustice. He went as a lamb to the slaughter. He went as a sacrifice to sin. That was his mission. And he stood before Pilate. Even Pilate saw the injustice of Jesus' arrest and their demands to crucify him. And he tried to get him free. And they used every kind of political manipulation against Pilate to try to get him to crucify Jesus. But Jesus said, it's all right. To this end, I've come into the world. In fact, you would not have the power to release me or crucify me were it not given to you of the Father. This is God's mission, to offer himself as the Lamb of God. Jesus is the foundation of justice. Justice and the conversation surrounding justice must begin with honoring God and end with relationship with him. The very minute that man broke his relationship with God, injustice entered the world and Cain rose up and slew his brother. and We all know the story. And the blood of Abel cried out from the ground for vengeance. The innocent blood of Abel cried for vengeance. But God said, that blood, though it was innocent, is not enough to base justice on. I am going to send I am going to send the Messiah and his blood will be qualified to produce justice. And in the book of Hebrews of the New Testament, it says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word, a better justice than the justice of Abel's blood crying for vengeance because the blood of Jesus cries forgiveness and mercy. Hallelujah. And not just forgiveness and mercy, but restitution and restoration. Jesus made restitution for our sins. He gave himself in payment. Our sins were paid in full. He didn't just decide, I'm not going to hold your sins against you. I'm going to pay for all the break and all of the sin that you've committed in your life. He touched every facet of justice with his life laid down. And so the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, offers the true foundation of justice. Now, when justice is removed from that foundation, being set upon the shoulders of the Messiah, when it's taken from its foundation in God, it becomes a corrupted form of justice or a partial justice. And the partial justice that the world experiences and that the world tries to um, apply to its societies, that partial justice in the history of 6,000 years of civilization has gone from one group of power to the next group of power. The partial justice of man is sold to the highest bidder. Whoever holds the power controls the justice. You can see that when removed from the shoulders of the Messiah, when justice is removed from God, it cannot possibly actually ever rise up to its aspirations of fairness and true mercy because of the issue of sin that laces itself through mankind. So when God dealt with Israel over their treason against him, and the resulting practices of injustice that they would always fall into, this was the command that he gave to them out of Hosea chapter 12, verse 6. But you must return to your God by maintaining love and justice and by waiting for your God to return to you. There is encapsulated the greatest Peace of wisdom for those today who are seeking justice in America. Return to your God by maintaining love and justice and by waiting for your God to return to you. Waiting before you rush out to do anything. Waiting before you run out to say anything. Before you run out and begin to smash and bash your way to, to justice and to trying to right what is wrong, Go before God and return to him and commit yourself to, and I love the fact that it doesn't say maintaining justice, it says maintaining love and justice. And justice is is preceded by love. All of God's judgments are tempered with mercy. God is the only one who can truly handle justice because God is love. And the kind of love he is, is not the love that you and I have for one another as brothers or sisters or husbands and wives, or the kind of love we have for a car that we've wanted and we get it, oh, I love this new car. But it's a word that is called agape, and it is a moral love. It's a love that is based at God's moral perfection. And so all of God's justice comes out of the fact that he is love and that he loves us. Another scripture that sums up this first principle that uh, that justice must be founded on relationship with God. And that's our first step. Um, And it is sandwiched like bookends between uh, honoring God and fellowshipping with God is the scripture in Micah that many of you have heard in chapter 6, verse 8. And it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and mercy and to humble yourself and walk humbly with your God. So that's the first principle of justice. The second one is an extension of it. And the second one is that justice itself is the fruit of sowing. The universal principle that runs all of creation is the principle of sowing and reaping. Everything moves forward in history through generations of sowing and reaping. You plant today for tomorrow's harvest. The expectation that you want to see in your life next week, you have to sow for it this week. And that applies in everything from relationships to your desires in life, to economics, to everything. In fact, all living things advance their species through sowing and reaping. Justice is not excluded. Justice is a crop that each generation can either have or will fail based on whether we sow for justice. In that scripture in Isaiah, Is that heart of the verse in verse 14 that says justice is turned away backward. And righteousness, uprightness and right standing with God stands afar off. Because truth has fallen in the street. And uprightness cannot enter the courts of justice. Why can we not get justice? We have laws on the books. Why are not we seeing them fulfilled? Why are we not behaving as the people that we have pledged ourselves to be in our constitution. Why do we not see ourselves walking in the love that men and women armed themselves with when they gave up their lives and their fortunes to found this country? They were motivated by love, not selfishness. Why have we not inherited that love? Truth has fallen in the streets because we have neglected and forsaken Our first love. The street, by the way, is the public place of interaction. It's the place where all of our lives intersect, be it work, be it socialization or recreation. The street refers to our public behavior with one another. Why do we not see uprightness in our courts? Why, instead of a justice system, do we have a legal system? And there is a world of difference between the two. Why are our judges surgeons with the techniques of the law rather than men and women of true justice? It's because we have moved justice from the foundation of love and God is love. I will say this to you because I want to make a couple quantifying statements about this second point that justice is the fruit of sowing. Justice cannot survive on hypocrisy. Let me say it again. Justice cannot survive on hypocrisy. Truth falls in the street of the society whose people demand the justice that they no longer practice in their own lives. When society allows the street to be ruled by people, whether citizens, or whether law enforcement people, when they allow the street to be ruled by people that demand justice while violating the rights of others, truth falls. Hypocrisy reigns and justice fails. It is as sure as universal mathematics of one plus one equals two. God's message to society is simple. It's plain. There can be no justice among people who do not practice justice. Sowing injustice will only produce more injustice. Life is a field and you're always sowing. You reap what you sow if you sow destruction you will reap destruction you can't get evil out of good and you can't get good out of evil if we can't be angry about injustice then then how do we affect change how do we move towards change when we see injustice When you read the tone of Isaiah 59, you could sense that God was a little bit angry. He wasn't angry like the destructive forces that rampage through our cities and uh, destroy other people's lives. He was angry with what we call righteous indignation. It says he saw injustice and it displeased the Lord. When God gets angry, he doesn't flip out and run through heaven and earth. And just simply randomly wipe out and destroy um, people. Amen. So the reality is <clears throat> that uh, we are faced with injustice. What do we do with the anger that we feel towards injustice? Well, he, uh, excuse me, Hebrews, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 26 says, be angry and don't sin. Anger is a human response. And sometimes to fail to be angry under certain conditions is inappropriate. Sometimes anger is the only appropriate emotion. But we must know and learn in Christ, being in balance and relationship with him, how to be angry and yet do not sin. And he goes on to say, the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian letter Uh, Do not let the sun go down on the cause of your anger. In other words, don't sit and seethe and boil in anger. Why? Because eventually it will turn into revenge. Eventually you will lose your perspective and it won't be about righting a wrong. It'll be about getting even. That's why it says, be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on the cause of your anger. Work it out with God first so that you're not poisoned with vengeance and misguided. People will like to cite Jesus going into the temple and becoming angry at the money changers, bringing commercialization into the sanctuary and how he violently overthrew the tables and he made a whip and you could see him. He was cracking the whip and flipping the tables over and the money was being spilled out. And what did Jesus say? He said, make not my Father's house. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise, for it is said, My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. So people like to cite Jesus in his, his righteous indignation. Um, and, uh, but I would point out concerning, concerning Jesus that when he overthrew the money changers' table, he wasn't attacking the idea of commerce. Or prosperity in the street, if you will, or in the marketplace of life. He was attacking the sin in his own house. Notice that. He was dealing with his house. He wasn't going into other people's houses and upbraiding and throwing stuff around. He was dealing with his own house. He said, This is when he said this is my father's house, he's saying, This is my house. And my house is a house of prayer. My house It was not a house of merchandising. And the merchandise was basically the selling of righteousness. You don't have to bring your sacrifices in. You can come in and rent them from us and then go offer them. There's no righteousness in that. You're just going through a religious formality. And so there was definitely corruption, and he was dealing with the corruption in his own house. Let me say to you today, if we practice righteous indignation ourselves, In our own houses, we'd be a lot less likely to act unjustly towards others when we pursue social justice. But today, our nation is in a ferocious ping pong game of reaction. We have lost control of the goal or of where we are heading or what we're wanting to do. We are now simply slamming back at one another what has been flung at us, and it just goes back and forth. And so we create injustice trying to pursue justice. God's answer to this is, make a scourge and throw the money, cha- table, the money changer's tables over in your own house. Go deal with your own life. Set your own house in order. Don't be a hypocrite and go rampaging through society, accusing everyone else, while you yourself are practicing injustice in your protests you cannot produce good through evil practices now anger can only become the pure righteous indignation that god will honor when that anger is surrendered to god in repentance and comes to god and pleads for mercy When we are angry at injustice, the first place we should go is before God. Father, forgive us. Take on the intercessor's heart. Forgive us in our land. Forgive we, American citizens. Make it your responsibility to stand as a citizen of all of us before the throne of God. You are the salt. You are the light. That's what we ought to be doing, is to come to God and plead for mercy, and then... We can be used of God to help to bring forth justice. And the scripture that just says it better than any other that I've ever heard is out of Isaiah, excuse me, Hosea. Chapter 10 and verse 12, That says, "Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Isn't that a amazing? so to yourself in righteousness. If everybody who was angry about the injustice that we saw, and who wasn't, only somebody with a mental disorder would see that horrible death and uh, the abuse of authority and not be angry. But the response, the next response is, so to yourself. You know, if you have, had the experience of growing up in or being part of an intimate family where there's a bond of unity and love for one another, and all of a sudden you've ever had the experience of finding out that one of your family members has all of a sudden been captured as a criminal or as a murderer. We had a woman many, many, many years ago in one of our churches that we pastored who's, um, who years before ever being involved, her husband was, was um, uh, charged with murder in a very high visible case of murder. And she and her son had to literally flee the city and go start a new life somewhere. Their lives were completely shredded by the shame of what her husband had done. And so when we see injustice, the first thing is to go sow to ourselves in righteousness and reap in mercy. If you're going to put on gloves and deal with the hot topics of justice, Then you have to have a heart that is established in grace. Paul writes to Timothy, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus if you're gonna disciple others and show them the way. So it brings us to our altar call this morning. And what a great altar call it is, because I will tell you that against the backdrop of what God said in Isaiah 59 about justice, here's what we have. We have a God who is eager to show forth his mercy. We have a God who has already come as Jesus Christ and provided justice for us. And he says, I make this covenant with you. If you will come into agreement with me, if you will seek my face and hold to my words, I will drive out the enemy when he comes in like a flood. I will rise up against him. I will restore justice in your land. We are standing at the moment of a great opportunity. We have before us a great opportunity for a Jesus revival in our nation. This which the enemy has meant for evil, this which he has done everything, And has elicited every kind of group he can to try to boil this thing over into a civil war. This, which Satan's meant to destroy us, this very situation can be used as a backdrop for the greatest revival America has ever seen. Because we need the one who is just. People are hungry and thirsty for justice, they are hungry and thirsty. Jesus. And if people can pivot away from finding fault with others and turn to realizing their own need for God's love, if we can communicate that in the street, if they could turn from rage and accusation to please with God for mercy shown in their own hearts, if we could see the truth of our need for God honored again in our streets, we would experience the greatest Jesus revival that our nation has ever had. And I believe that today. And if you do too, I'd like you to stand with me and we're going to pray.